Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome back for another episode of the Northern Agenda podcast, another weekly insight into the big political stories that are making waves across our great region. It's a pleasure to be with you again. I'm Rob Parsons, Northern Agenda editor for Reach, which publishes titles like The Hull, Daily Mail and Liverpool Echo. If you want to see what I do every day, check out the Northern Agenda newsletter. You can get it in your inbox every weekday lunchtime at www.thenorthernagenda.co.uk. Coming up on this week's podcast, we're taking a closer look at hydrogen. Stay with me, it's not a chemistry lesson, but a beginner's guide to how the most abundant chemical element in the universe could hold the key to creating thousands of jobs all across the north. I've been talking with two experts from Teesside University so that hopefully when you hear politicians talking about hydrogen and net zero on the news in the coming weeks, you'll know what they're talking about. But first, Hundreds of thousands of us across the north will be heading out to watch the football this weekend, whether it's massive clubs like Manchester City or Newcastle or smaller non-league outfits. But a new report by the Onward Think Tank and the Northern Research Group of Conservative MPs says Northern football clubs are under threat with areas set to lose their lifeblood of their communities unless the government steps in. It's a particularly timely report, as this week the first details have emerged of what's being described as the biggest shake-up in football ownership in years. The football white paper, expected to be published as early as next week, follows a fan-led review into the beautiful game in November 2021. But will it be enough to save more clubs from following the grim fate of the likes of Bowie FC, who were expelled from the league in 2019 and have yet to return? or Bolton and Wigan, whose very future was thrown into doubt after being placed into administration. Let's find out by speaking to Alex Luke, senior researcher at Onward, who wrote the report. Alex, welcome. Hi, Rob. Thanks very much for having me on. No trouble at all. So I'll just just tell you and our listeners, if you can hear a bit of banging in the background, there's some building work going on uh, at my house in Leeds. I've taken refuge in my daughter's bedroom to record this podcast. But if you can hear a bit of banging or falling masonry, that's what it is. So uh, with that with that caveat in mind, um, Alex, your report is very interesting. 15 pages, lots of facts and figures, quite compelling stuff. Can you just take us through some of the main headlines from your perspective? Yeah, thanks, Robin. It's um, really good to hear that you were interested in our report. Um, essentially, what we wanted to look at is 
we wanted to make the case, A, that football is incredibly important to people in the North. I mean, I'm sure you and I both know that, um, but we wanted to demonstrate that with as much data and, and sort of interesting insights as we could. Um, because, you know, as you say, as you rightly mentioned with Bury, um, Bolton and Wigan, and there's been numerous other examples in recent years, um, so many of these football clubs that are so dear to people and that are sort of a staple of everything that people do on a weekend have been put at risk um, over the past few decades, really, whether that's due to overspending to try and chase promotions to the Premier League, um, financial trouble in lower leagues where owners may not have the cash to stump up to cover perhaps the impact of COVID or other losses that these clubs often make on a, a weekly or monthly basis. And really what we found is that while this is a national issue, obviously you've seen, you know, we all remember Portsmouth going into administration of the Premier League. Um, Reading have had significant financial trouble and be under a transfer embargo for the past season. Um, but what our research has found is that it does tend, I, I say tend, northern clubs are perhaps disproportionately likely to undergo these sort of financial issues. Um, we didn't delve too much into why that might be. Um, perhaps you might say that rich owners have tended to sort of congregate around southern clubs in and around London, um, which perhaps means then they don't have the reserves to cover losses um, to the same extent. But what we what we did find is that it's been northern clubs that have been disproportionately at risk um, of entering or experiencing these sort of financial difficulties in the past 30 years or so. It's really interesting. So what would you like the powers that be... Uh, whether it's the government or the clubs themselves, to uh, to do about this? We really need to see something s- strong and sort of a, a, a major ref- reform to the English game, really, that protects these clubs up and down the country, particularly those in the north, um, and and tries to ensure their long-term financial sustainability. Because I mean, if you look at the data at the moment, a couple of years ago, three quarters of northern football clubs were losing money year on year. That every season that requires their owners to put their hands in their pockets um, and fund the difference. And if those owners then lose interest or run out of money, um, you can see the implications when you look at Bolton and Berry um, and Wigan and numerous others. Um, and I, I mean, there's been some EFL analysis this season, I think, shows that. English Football League clubs are predicted to lose 350 million by the end of the season. Um, it's a staggering amount of money, and, and really that is a kind of endemic issue that has been created by the uh, wealth inequalities and disparities between the top tier, the Premier League, and the rest of English football. Um, as as I'm sure many listeners will know, that just leads to clubs in the Championship spending huge sums of money to try and chase promotions to the Premier League. It spends uh, it's, it causes clubs in Leagues 1 and 2 to do the same to try and reach the tier above. Um, and that is really what's creating this financial risk. So what we would like to see um, is reform to football that recognises that this has been a massive issue over the past 30 years or so, um, particularly since the formation of the Premier League, and really sets out a proper plan to help these clubs become more financially sustainable, stop them taking these um, dangerous gambles, uh, financial gambles, and perhaps something which tries to ensure they're better governed so that they're less likely um, to experience these issues. Because is it the case at the moment that football isn't really subject to a huge amount of regulation from the government? Like in most 
areas of football, it's allowed to the clubs, the big clubs, or even the small clubs are allowed to sort of get on and really do what they want. So is it the case that the state, you'd like to see the state take a more proactive role in sort of ensuring a level playing field and I guess protecting the, the sort of more vulnerable clubs from, from going under? Yeah, I think you're right that that is the case at the moment, um, as is the case with most sports, really. Um, and in an ideal world, you would be able to leave it up to the sport to govern itself, to regulate itself, um, and to ensure its long-term sustainability, as as you'd hope with any sport, um, that they would be able to to do that themselves. But I think what you have seen with football is because of the sheer amount of money involved, um, it has, uh, and also I think one of the reasons why it's now so important for this reform is that football clubs, perhaps more than any other sport, are like incredibly invaluable community assets um, up all across the country, again, particularly in the North. The North's got more professional football clubs per capita than any other part of the UK, for example. Um, but what we, I think, truly understand now is how important football clubs are to people. They're a massive part of people's lives. Um, you know, people's weeks are, are made so much better when their team wins and so much worse when their team loses. Um you know, they've got hundreds of years of heritage in some cases now. Um, stadiums have been at the heart of communities for years as well. So I think what we've done is, I think what, what needs to happen is their role as invaluable community assets needs to be recognised now. And because of the level of spending and the amount of money that's now in football, which isn't going to go away because it is this global entertainment business, um, we do now need to look at steps to try and, protect that for the long term because as i say in an, in an ideal world um, we wouldn't be having this issue um but we clearly are it's been a big problem over the last 30 years and so we need to take some steps to, to try and sort it out yeah because i guess the the worry is obviously bury fc three years ago went into administration then were expelled from the the league there's been you know i think locally there's hopes that they might be able to get a professional team back again but that hasn't happened so far, presumably the fear is that if the current situation uh, is allowed to continue, then more clubs will go. In, more clubs in the north of England will go the way of, of, of Bury and be forced out of existence. Yeah, absolutely. That that is the fear, um, and that's why I think we can't really wait any longer for reform because the longer you wait, the greater the risk that there is another story like like Bury. I mean, I seem to remember. Um, one of Bolton or Wigan were reportedly just hours or minutes away from suffering a similar fate a few seasons ago. Derby have also had massive problems in recent years, and I'm sure many other fans will will have seen similar similar events occur in their own clubs. Um, so it is a sort of real risk that the longer we wait, especially with these clubs losing money year on year, um, that we could have another tragic story on our hands. And, you know, when, when these clubs have been around at the heart of communities for so many years, I think Barry was a 100-year-plus history um, that was lost, essentially. I mean, I really hope that a professional professional football can come back to Barry once again and back to Gig Lane. Um, but we shouldn't be having these problems in the first place. And, and as I say, the longer we wait to sort them out... Um, the, the greater the risk that there's another tragic story. Obviously, like I mentioned at the start of the podcast, your report was done with the help of the Northern Research Group, which is the group of a few dozen Northern Conservative uh, backbenchers. And there's a, a foreword in the report by 
John Stevenson, who says, Our party's majority is built on the support of footballing towns and cities across the region who put their faith in us at the last election. I mean, I guess it's perhaps more of a political question, but do you get the sense that the government is has not quite grasped the importance of of football and the role that football plays in communities to to voters or that they may be slowly slowly waking up to it now i think they're definitely waking up to it yeah i mean if you look at what the government has done since it was elected there's been this fan-led review of football governance um which is a sort of huge uh undertaking led by um groups of football supporters and other important stakeholders from across the UK. Uh, I think something like 130 uh, football clubs or fan groups um, contributed to that report. Um, And that basically set out the state of football in in Britain at the moment um, and why reform is needed. Uh, It made 10, I think 10, uh, strategic recommendations for how the game could be reformed. Um, And what we saw under Boris Johnson was that his government accepted uh, basically every recommendation in the report. Um, but that report came out over a year ago now. And naturally, it, there's, there's always going to be some disruption when you have two further changes in Prime Minister, um, of course. But but it's been over a year since that report was published, uh, over a year since the government responded to it, I believe. Um, and that's why we're now sort of, that's why we wanted to put this out there to try and give another call to action, um, to try and sort of, get some traction behind this. Um, and I think the government are starting to to really recognise the importance of, of football. Um, as I say, that the fan-led review was a sort of landmark moment that we've not seen before in, in the modern game. Yeah, like you say, it, it's, uh, it, it's good timing, I guess, that we're speaking about this today, is the Sun has got hold of uh, a leaked version uh, of this football white paper. And we know a bit about what it, might say it's things like taxing teams an annual fee to fund an independent regulator and the regulator can, uh, in the words of the sun, raid money from the Premier League to help prop up lower leagues. So is this obviously with the caveat that what's actually in the white paper might not be quite as per the way the sun has reported it, is this, does it sound like it's living up to what the fan-led review is asking for, what you're what you're asking for? Yeah, I mean... Obviously, we always have to take these leaks with a pinch of salt until the finished product is out there. Um, but it's definitely a positive indication, I think, that um, the white paper will set out or, or may set out um, some of the key recommendations from the fan-led review and some of the key things that we think um, the game needs. So so that is this, this new potential independent regulator for football. I think there's a sort of clear consensus um, among people in the game that this is needed um and is and they would not be opposed to it um and that will really sort of provide greater oversight uh regulatory oversight um and really help it will be set up with the goal of providing uh, or ensuring the financial stability of football for years to come um and I, as i say we we've not had a, a body with that explicit um objective to date. Um, So if something like that is introduced, it'd be a really positive step. And I think it's also uh, something we argued for in the report is it's incredibly important that there is 
perhaps these new redistributive payments from the top tiers of the English football pyramids down to the lower divisions. And um, because at the moment there's these vast, vast disparities in, in income and, and wealth between Premier League clubs and championship clubs. And then it gets increasingly uh, worse as you go down the football pyramid. Um, and so there's, there's definitely a real, a real need um, to sort of rebalance that slightly. Um, so that, it, that's probably one of the key ways that you can reduce the incentives for clubs to spend well beyond their means chasing promotion, for example. Um, so, as I say, we, we have to take it with a pinch of salt at the moment, but there's some encouraging signs, definitely, that the government has listened to the, to the fan-led review, um, listened to what football clubs are saying, um, and is taking some action to, to try and stop this problem. Alex Luke from Onward, thank you so much. Thanks very much, Rob. Now, we all know that policymakers, both at national level in northern town halls and the region's boardrooms, are wrestling with how to reduce our carbon emissions to minimise the potentially devastating impact of climate change. And hydrogen, that most common of elements that's in the very water we drink, looks like it will play a key role. The government says that by 2030, it wants to be producing 5 gigawatts of low carbon hydrogen production capacity for industry, transport, power and homes, and aiming to develop the first town heated entirely by hydrogen by the end of the decade. But for all the media coverage of hydrogen and its potential economic impact on the North, I think there's a lot of people, like me, who don't know that much about the process that produces it or how it will actually work how it will benefit us so to help us understand that we need a hand from experts who really know their stuff so i'm happy that i'm joined by two academics from teesside university dr venkatesan venkata krishnan a senior lecturer in chemical engineering and professor nashwan dawood from the net zero industry innovation center so hello to you both hello hello Hello, thank you for coming on. So Venkat, um, just to start off with the basics, just to understand, I guess, why people are so keen to promote hydrogen as a clean energy source. What what are the advantages of hydrogen as opposed to, say, natural gas or wind or nuclear? And where do we actually get hydrogen from in, in the first place? Okay, uh, to clarify the beginning, hydrogen is uh, a clean energy vector. It's not a source. Uh, it, it is a derived resource. It can be used for energy and for chemical transformations. Hydrogen is not a be-all and end-all solution for every energy application. It will be certainly in the mix. Hydrogen is derived from renewable energy sources that include solar, wind, biomass, geothermal, tidal power, etc. If hydrogen is combusted to release energy, it only gives off water and water vapor. Water is part of nature's water cycle. So therefore, production and consumption cycle for hydrogen is sustainable. We will need hydrogen for certain kinds of transportation like HGVs, train locomotives, shipping, and perhaps air transport in the future as well. Chemical sector, green energy, uh, green steel production, and fuel for heating. For shipping and air transport, uh, the hydrogen usage is very tricky. Uh, but unfortunately, batteries are not likely to solve the problems of such mag- magnitude. So therefore, hydrogen is needed. The another interesting thing about hydrogen is got an incredibly high gravimetric energy density, which means with a small weight, you can generate a large amount of energy. So that's some of the uh, reasons why hydrogen is considered in so much esteem at this stage. So just to clarify one thing, you said that hydrogen is a a vector 
rather than a source. I, I, I'm not sure I totally understand what that means. Can you just explain explain that for me? Yes. Hydrogen is not available in nature. Hydrogen is not available in a natural form like natural gas is, you know. So it cannot be compared directly with a source. A natural gas is a source, you know. It's available in nature directly. You can, uh, just like oil, just like coal. Same thing with wind. Wind is available in nature. Now, hydrogen is not available in nature. It has to be derived. It needs to be made from something. It can be made from hydrocarbons. It can be made from water. Uh, it can be made from biomass. So uh, these are all the uh, type of uh, scenarios where um, hydrogen is embedded. So that is the reason why I don't call it a source. I call it a vector. So sorry, you, you were just about to tell us about the means of production. Industrially, uh, hydrogen is largely made from natural gas. Natural gas comprises over 95% methane. This is done at very high temperatures, over 800 degrees C in the presence of a catalyst. The methane and the other hydrocarbons in the natural gas are reacted with steam by a process called steam reforming to generate syngas. Syngas is a mixture of carbon monoxide and hydrogen. The carbon monoxide is converted further to carbon dioxide by a process called water gas shift reaction. And that ends up giving you hydrogen, extra hydrogen as well. So you can generate a large quantities of hydrogen from natural gas, but then in the process, you release several tons of CO2 per every ton of hydrogen that you produce. However, due to the very strong technological maturity of this process and the abundance of natural gas, this method yields the cheapest hydrogen. The hydrogens, this hydrogen services all the energy needs, ammonia production, refinery applications, vegetable oil, hydrogenation, and so on. Alternatively, you can apply electrical power and electrolyze water or steam to give hydrogen and oxygen, but the existing electricity costs make this route expensive. But it is hoped that as the cost of renewable electrical power comes down, the hydrogen costs can come down too as well. Now, when I hear politicians talking about hydrogen and its uses, they quite often talk about green hydrogen or blue hydrogen or grey hydrogen. Can you just explain the difference between those? Because they're, they're, they're quite different, aren't they? The worst form of hydrogen is actually brown hydrogen, which is where you can use coal. And from coal, you can derive hydrogen. Uh, but that not, not that's, that's hardly being used now anymore. Gray hydrogen is the hydrogen that's made from the steam methane reforming that I just talked a couple of minutes ago. And uh, this is for fossil natural gas. The associated emissions, particularly carbon dioxide, are released into the air. So this is called gray hydrogen. Now, in the gray, same uh, gray hydrogen process, if you take the emissions, instead of releasing them to the air, you capture them. That is, all the carbon dioxide that you release from the production of gray hydrogen is captured. Then it becomes what is called blue hydrogen. So blue hydrogen technically gives you a lot of hydrogen and doesn't release any CO2 because all the CO2 is captured. Finally, green hydrogen. Green hydrogen means the high electrolysis is primarily the main route for green hydrogen, but you have to make sure that the electrical power that you supply for electrolysis is renewable, entirely renewable. That means it comes from um, wind or solar or geo, geothermal and, and that kind of stuff. So that is green hydrogen. Nash, now obviously there are lots of sources or vectors of clean energy that can contribute to the UK's net zero goals, which we hear from the government. I mean, how much emphasis, as far as you can tell, has the national government or, or local leaders put on hydrogen? How, how much are we going to be trying to produce or how much do we need to produce by 2040 or 2050 to hit net zero? 
Yeah, um, thanks for the um, uh, for the question. Obviously, uh, UK um, set uh, UK government set stall on what we call a diverse um, energy um, sources. So th there isn't any of those um, energy that we currently use um, is going to be the the dominant um, basically. So the clean electricity that's going to be produced from renewable energy um, is in the increase at the moment. Uh, through different onshore and offshore uh, wind turbine um, that can constitute uh, 20 to 30 percent of the electricity uh, demand in the UK by 2035 or 2040. We've got emphasis as well on the um, nuclear, uh, which is going to be about 5 to 10 percent uh, going forward towards um, uh, 2035, 2040. And, and obviously, um, there will be the hydrogen in the mix, which is, so we've got the wind and solar and nuclear, and then the hydrogen is, is quite important in terms of trying to, for the UK to decarbonize. I think if you take the hydrogen out, it's almost impossible uh, to decarbonize. So, so hydrogen is, is, as Vinkat was saying, is not only going to be used uh, directly, it might be the, the medium as well, as, as wind is blowing in their own uh, sort of at a time which might not be used. Uh, and as the battery is in development at the moment, particularly the chemical uh, part of the batteries, uh, the, the the hydrogen can play a major part in trying to store energy as well as uh, being an, an sort of energy vector. As an electricity is being produced, you can perhaps uh, produce uh, through electrolyzers quite um, green hydrogen. Uh, you can store it, but so so therefore, without hydrogen, it would be uh, difficult um, to decarbonize. Now, particularly for the industrial cluster, as we've been talking about, industrial cluster. Uh, transport, particularly heavy heavy transport, as it's, it will provide heavy torque, heavy uh, high energy compared to, for example, uh, uh, compared for example, batteries. So, so, so hydrogen is really uh, set to play a, a major role in the decarbonization agenda. I mean, having said that, uh, as you can see, government and industry is working really hard. Uh, to sort of uh, invest billions um, in, in terms of blue and green hydrogen um, in the particularly, I mean, it's, it's in the Northeast has been quite evidence, particularly the engagement of a quite high so blue chip companies um, in terms of um, investment in this particular sector. Thank you. I, I saw recently a committee of MPs in the Commons say that hydrogen is not going to be a panacea for reaching net zero emissions by 2050, and they were pointing to some of, the, some of the downsides that exist to hydrogen. I mean, from your point of view, what are the downsides of using hydrogen as a clean energy vector or source? Is it is it right that compared with other processes, it can be quite inefficient and expensive? Two parts to your question. The first part, when you mentioned about these MPs talking about uh, the hydrogen is not going to be a panacea, uh, one has to be very careful about how these statements are made and how they're interpreted uh, because they are, can be interpreted and misinterpreted in many ways. Hydrogen, what is really important to, to know is that it may not be the panacea, it's not be the only panacea, you know, but it definitely is a major component in meeting the net zero targets, unmistakably, uh, like Nash said a couple of minutes earlier. And why is that? It's because the hydrogen's reach goes to so many sectors where massive amounts of decarbonizations are needed. It comes from the heating sector. It, it has a role to play in the heating sector, in power generation, 
in ammonia production, in oil refineries, in steel industry, in the cement industry. In every single one of them, hydrogen can be used to eliminate the carbon footprint. If we produce hydrogen from renewable energy globally on a scale that's unprecedented, the, that's what it's going to take to make a huge impact on all these industries to decarbonize. Additionally, you should also bear in mind that there are certain areas where hydrogen cannot directly play a role, but on the other hand, it can actually assist. Like, for example, you take hydrogen and you combine it with CO2. You can make chemicals like methanol. You can make olefins. And olefins are the backbone for a wide range of uh, polymers and plastics and aviation turbine fuel. Now, this is, uh, it's vital uh, because uh, this, this route is very vital because it enables us to make, to make carbon-containing materials from non-fossil carbon sources. You see, so hydrogen's uh, value is, is, is immense. So that's one of the uh, points. And the other point that you mentioned about uh, efficiency and so on. Well, you could say by the time you take the, uh, by the time you generate the electrical power and from there you finally generate hydrogen, yes, there are going to be some efficiency losses. But you have to bear in mind that we are talking about huge scales in this case, you know. And the point is, if you have, let's consider a very typical scenario. A typical scenario is that you take all the renewable power and you want uh, and want you to transfer it to the grid. But is that possible effectively? Because the demand and supply do not sync up with each other. Sometimes the demand is high when the supply is great. Uh, some, sometimes demand is very low when the supply is great and vice versa. So what do you do? You do something called grid balancing. Now, can batteries handle that kind of grid balancing? Can batteries handle gigawatts of surplus power? You know, that is, a, the, the industrial community does not have a solution for that, that kind of problem, a problem of that magnitude. So hydrogen comes in very, very valuable in the, and, and those scenarios. It allows for grid balancing. Yes, you lose energy in the transformative process, but you can handle the scales and the storage of hydrogen much, much better than you can do with batteries. But there is a bigger problem. The bigger problem is there's a lack of public awareness. There are a lot of misconceptions, particularly related to safety. Therefore, we need to step up education programs for school and college students and for the general community about hydrogen. That's really interesting. Now, Nash, it, when I'm reading around this subject, it seems like a lot of the efforts to produce hydrogen and store it are up in the north of England. I'm seeing projects like uh, Hynet in the northwest and big schemes where you are on Quayside and in the Humber region as well. Is there a, a particular reason why so much of this work is going on up here in the north? And what, what's the sort of potential economic impact of, of that being the case? I mean, as as probably you know, um, at the moment, Teesside is producing about 50% of the hydrogen in the UK. So hydrogen is not new, really. It's been going on for a long time now. Produced as a byproduct or, or produced as a, as a product for other, other use in the industry uh, sector. But particularly the... Uh, the industrial cluster here uh, at Teesside um, is is been so sort of producing this um, the, the hydrogen for for a long time now. So as the decarbonisation agenda hit us, so so the the natural thinking is is how then to to make sure that uh, we um, increase the capacity of of hydrogen production, uh, particularly in the northeast. I know very well the high net in Liverpool, and uh, my uh, friend Joe Joe um, is is handling uh, is the academic uh, lead uh, for the northwest, Joe Howie. But I mean, particularly the Hull anti sites positioned 
well positioned to do this, particularly uh, as you know, as 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 Vinkert was talking about taking CO2 after hydrogen production, particularly after in the steam reforming. So basically, basically where this uh, CO2 will go, it will not go to byproduct because it will be released at a, another point in time. So so basically, one of the important processes is to take this particular hydrogen and store it uh, for a thousand years uh, and the. Uh, we're fortunate enough to have um, oil well that's currently empty, like the Endurance uh, opposite Hull and other places in the North, uh, in the North Sea. And that can be taken um, to to um, convert CO2 into some form of a brine sort of liquid uh, and then ship them uh, and store them. And that's where the our, our net zero uh, T-side is all about. And this is where the region is really focusing on. Now, moving to the other question, the knock-on effect. Of course, uh, T-side is being the home for heavy industry. Now, the heavy industry being um, demised somehow like steel and other production, um, so, so there is the ability, there is the culture of technical mind. So, so basically, um, the region is well um, geared now for producing uh, the next generation of, of skills in terms of hands-on managers, uh, educators in this particular area. So, so that that really will 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 support the development of the of the region economically, um, get more people and anticipate a thousand a thousand of 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 employment will be generated out of these uh, particular sectors. And I know one of the areas that you're particularly interested in is um, the fact that uh, one application of hydrogen is an as as an alternative to natural gas to heat our homes, which sounds uh, amazing. Can you explain how far we are from that being a real uh, becoming a reality? Because there's, there's quite a lot of that work is going on 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 Teesside in 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 Redco, isn't it? Indeed. I mean, f- f- fortunately, I was uh, with the uh, Northern Gas people presenting their work. As you know, Northern Gas um, is responsible for the network, and their ambition is to really to run hydrogen on these networks. Um, so therefore, they, um, these particular infrastructure are quite crucial. Without infrastructure, it's really difficult to, to move because this is where the vector is. You produce, you move, you use. Um, so, so, so basically, the, 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 the current plan is to have a number of demonstrators in, in, in the housing sector to, 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 to demonstrate how hydrogen can be used in heating, cooking, you know, the whole aspect. And, and there are lots of interesting prototypes being produced, particularly in terms of stoves, um, how sort of the hydrogen will, will be combusted um, to cook your breakfast, to cook your meal, um, and, and the heating uh, systems. Uh, and, and at the moment, I believe that there is some requirement capture from from people and there is another village being established as well. I think in the in in, in the in near Newcastle, I can't remember the name, but but, but basically uh, th- there is some work uh, is going on. It's quite serious uh, in terms of trying to see um, how really the, the the possibility of of using hydrogen to heat our home and to to sort of for us to be to be used on a daily basis. Now, so far the experiment looks to be quite. Uh, positive. Um, there is some scare about the the sort of the pressure uh, of hydrogen, how hydrogen is going to be um, uh, provided to homes, for example. At the moment, we use to gas network. Now, whether the gas network has been uh, can be used at the moment, there's expect, 
experimentation in terms of having a bit of hydrogen, I think 20% of hydrogen in the gas network. So, so, so there are lots of quite exciting development going on. Um, and and this is and that will enhance the supply chain. So you need to have technicians of how to maintain uh, boilers that 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 powered by hydrogen, the cookers, the you know the whole issue related with with the way that that, that will go. And some people remind me that uh, when they changed um, when the homes changed to natural gas, uh, I don't know whether 30, 40, 50 years ago, is 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 they been through the same process? Uh, I mean, I it would be good to have a historian to see what what went on in the transition. That uh, we we get into the to the other revolution now, which is moving on from from gas uh, to uh, from natural gas to to hydrogen. So it's exciting time. And I know uh, Venkat, one of the things that people on Teesside in your neck of the woods are particularly excited about is how hydrogen can be used to create a low carbon steel industry, which I guess is particularly topical, isn't it? Because there's you know debate about the future of the British steel industry for various reasons. But what, what can you tell me about what's going on uh, locally for you with low carbon steel? I'm very much involved in this uh, activities towards the steel industry right now. But let me just give you a small introduction. Uh, in order to make steel in the traditional blast furnace, which is a 100-plus-year-old technology, you need carbon. Uh, the carbon is provided as coke, and the coke is injected in the blast furnace to reduce the iron oxide to iron. But in the process, the carbon gets converted to CO2, and therefore significant amount of CO2 is released per ton of iron produced. So it's estimated that apparently 7% of the global CO2 released comes from the steel industry. So the expectations are to get the decarbonization technologies operational within five to 10 years, apparently. Hydrogen can be used to make iron from iron ore directly. It's a very simple reduction process. You take Fe2O3, react it with hydrogen, and you get iron. It's called direct reduction. But once And once the iron is produced, it can then be sent to the electrical arc furnace for steel making, which is a standard technology. And that electricity also needs to be renewable. So does the energy that you need to produce hydrogen that also needs to be renewable. Uh, so this is a, a very simple chemistry. There are some some com some complexities in terms of designing reactors. That's what we are working on. Uh, Teesside University is working with uh, MPI, that is Manif Materials Processing Institute, uh, and a couple of other agencies like SeaTech uh, and a couple of other univers universities. We have already finished the feasibility phase one on this in this area, and we have applied for phase two funding so that we can design a full pilot plant using this hydrogen DRI technology. Wow, so there's, uh, yeah, quite a lot that we can expect to hear on that in the coming weeks and months. Yes. And um, I'll ask you one final question, uh, Nash, um, about, I guess, on the political side of things. What, in your view, does the government need to do to make sure that all the work that we're hearing about from both of you in places like Teesside, the Humber and the Northwest actually turns into jobs because obviously you know there's there's the there's the net zero reason why we're doing all this but also it's being linked to you know leveling up and the political side of things and and the fact of you know bringing new jobs to areas which uh, have seen a decline in their traditional industries what what can the prime minister or the powers that be be doing to to make sure this process really really sticks yeah, thanks. I'm I'm pleased that uh, our new Prime Minister um, um, Rishi Sunak is following the footsteps of uh, our previous Prime Minister in terms of really 
um, full ahead with the uh, with the plans to to sort of to provide support um, to companies to the regions uh, in terms of uh, getting on with the decarbonization of the new projects um, and the support um, the support is, is is needed and I think the the government obviously as a as a as a, as a main enabler um, in terms of the the way we do things um, in terms of the support that, that we need to receive whether grants or whether a development of a, a new generation of companies um, that, that will be focusing on this. We're doing lots of work with the labs and with other people here in terms of development of skills, skills portfolios, uh, skill competencies, etc. At the end of the day, really, there is a lot of political pressure from somewhere else that comes, um, and I hope um, that the plan will not be derailed, particularly different wars going on around the world, um, different issues with with the um, with the finance as well in terms of the the uh, the government purse, uh, how much they can spend on our on on the conversion and on the uh, on the net zero. So uh, that's something that we've been experiencing um, in terms of um, courses getting really very um, high uh, compared to last year, for example, in terms of a new installation and new facilities, etc. So so I hope that the 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 government will stick to the plan uh, and we're moving on towards a better uh, world uh, in terms of getting the uh, the skills getting the industry uh, to move to the um, t- to the next phase of revolution now now i go around the world as well they look into the uk as we are a little bit ahead of 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 other particularly in the far east or, or the middle east so so there is massive amount of opportunity uh, to develop those and then export the technology uh, and make a, a massive amount of, of of contribution plus plus profit out of these uh, initiatives. Yeah, so it's not just for the benefit of the UK that we need to press ahead with this. It's for the the rest of the world as well. Well, it's fascinating stuff, Nash and Venkat. Thank you so much for sparing the time to take us through that. I feel a lot better educated about hydrogen and its uh, its applications now and I hope our, I hope our listeners do too so um, thank you both again for your time thank you for listening to the northern agenda podcast and don't forget you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk it's more important than ever for northern voices to be heard the northern agenda is a laudable production for reach it's presented by me rob parsons and it's produced by daniel j mccoughlin If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.